and welcome to a new emergency episode of Ringer Dish, your source for everything pop culture and entertainment on the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Kate Hallowell, and I'm here with the Ringers, Taylor Swift, correspondent and expert Nora Princiati to give our instant reactions to Taylor Swift's surprise eighth studio album, which dropped overnight. Nora, give me a sense of your emotional state throughout the past 24 hours, which is how long it's been since she announced it. Okay. So right now my emotional state is great because Taylor Swift correspondent is like the nicest thing anyone's ever called me. Um, (laughs) so I'm thrilled. I really like it. And I also just feel like we should do this in a 24 hour timeframe from now on. I just, I don't really ever want to go through a, a Taylor singles true rollout cycle really ever again knowing what this feels like, which was just so pleasant and wonderful and involving so much less stress. So I'm, I'm in a good place, Kate. I fully agree. So yeah, that's our first takeaway is that we love the surprise drop. We're going to do eight full takeaways from her eighth studio album. And yeah, the first one is like, please never give us warning again. Right? (laughs) Yeah, totally. And like Taylor has such a fraught relationship with lead singles. They tend to not sound anything like what ends up being on the album. The first one from Lover Was Me, which is a troubling song that we won't speak of again on this pod. And she has a long history of doing that. I mean, it goes back to, you know, look what you made me do and stuff like that. So again, we just bypassed that whole thing and it was glorious. I agree. We're going to get into analyzing her single in a minute, but I I agree. And I think she also has a very fraught relationship with like the backlash of the internet. And I think the longer people sit and talk about Taylor Swift, the more likely they are to be like, actually, she sucks or actually I have problems with something that they don't need to have problems with. So I feel like releasing an album out of nowhere and just giving people no time to not like it and not like her and just actually be forced to like sit and enjoy and just talk about the music was really helpful. Yeah, totally. Because even I mean, I Taylor Swift is my favorite human being that I've never met on planet Earth. And I still get really stressed whenever she's going to release new music, which is so weird because I've never disliked an album of hers. But every time there's a new one, I just find myself like clenching my fists being like, please, 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 please don't prove me wrong. Don't like don't make me defend something I don't actually like. Uh, and that's never had to happen. So I don't know why there's, there's just such an anxiety over it. So yeah, this was great. And the Taylor Swift discourse is just so exhausting. Like they're just, everyone has a take. Everyone has a thought. Everyone doesn't like her for some reason, which I definitely have been part of in the past. Like we all have been annoyed by her at some point. And then like, as soon as she releases an album, we're like, oh, right. Taylor Swift is good. So we just like got to skip all of the think pieces, everything about like, oh, what does her next era mean? And we just got to go straight to the album and it was great. Yeah, just good songs. It's all we need. I agree. My takeaway um, is that she announced this album with a tweet and she talked about how, you know, in the past, she's had to give up on a lot of things this summer, as have everyone. You know, she didn't get to have her tour and and a lot of things, obviously, that she had planned. Um, And she said, before this year, I probably would have overthought when to release this music at the perfect time. But the times we're living in keep reminding me that nothing is guaranteed. My gut is telling me that if you make something you love, you should just put it out into the world. So she released this album. She put it out into the world, which like I totally am with. I totally understand her point of view on that. However, 
This is such a fall album. The main single is called Cardigan. Knitwear is just a continuing theme. There are three different songs that talk about sweaters and wool, and it's about walking in the woods. And I just think that fall music is a very specific genre, and it's one that I enjoy. And listening to this album in July feels so wrong inside my heart. Yeah, like there's definitely a closet here that includes the scarf from All Too Well. (laughs) It just like feels like fall. And I just I want to be like outside, like in 50 degree or below weather. Um, And I make a fall playlist every year with like exactly this kind of music on it. And just the fact that I'm going to be sick of it in three months before I'm making my fall playlist Uh, And I get why she released it now. It totally makes sense. But I feel like we're still going to be in quarantine in three months. And she could have just dropped it then. Yeah, (laughs) she can just bring it back. I had a theory that turned out to not be true that she was like stuck in England for all of this just because the vibe was so it felt like the temperature was, you know, 10 plus degrees cooler wherever she was doing this. But then on the credits, it says that the vocals were recorded at something called Kitty Committee Studios in Los Angeles, which I'm pretty sure just means her office. Uh, <laughs> that feels right. Yeah. Um, You're right, though. I feel like I would have bought that. I would have bought that maybe it had a fall vibe because the weather was more moderate in wherever the hell she was in the UK. Yeah, that that was my theory, but I don't think it's right. Um, yeah. I am curious. Something that sort of emerged as a as a Taylor trope over the last, like, year, I would say, is that she writes really quickly. Mm. And the last, so the last two song releases were Only the Young, which went with Miss Americana, the documentary about her life, and uh, Christmas Tree Farm, which was like a goofy Christmas single. But the narrative around both of those songs, like for Only the Young, the part where they are talking about it in the documentary, it's her and Joel Little, the producer, like sitting in a studio and she's basically just like doing a completed song for him. And he's like, Oh yeah, I'll like turn on a synth here and play a few notes. And then it's done. Like, it feels like they did that whole thing in an hour. And I don't know if that's a little bit of, um, like self mythologizing on her part, but it does seem like there's some element of truth in that this stuff is being created incredibly quickly which was making me a little bit nervous. Like you said, when it was like, oh my gosh, this is coming out right now. It turned out like that fear did not turn out to be well-founded. I just felt like, you know, Christmas Tree Farm and Only the Young are like fine songs, but they're not super complicated. They're not like, there's no emotional depth. They're just like hooky and fun. And I guess Taylor's just using her quarantine time very well. Right. I know. And I had that thought as well when she was like in isolation, like I came up with all these songs. I was like, okay, it's been four months. And you know, all those tweets where it was like, you know, Shakespeare wrote King Lear in quarantine when he was quarantined from the plague. I was like, this is her (laughs) King Lear. Uh, And that sucks because it is pretty much like her masterpiece. Um, And I feel shitty about what I've accomplished. But it is impressive that that these songs, I mean, apparently went from in her brain to a release studio album in literally four months. You love to see it. You love to hear it. You really do love to see. (laughs) Um, Okay. Hit me with your next takeaway. Yeah. So I've been going back and forth on this one, but I think it's always interesting to think about like when Taylor puts out new music, it always has little threads that tie back to the last stuff, but she's certainly known for her different eras and reinventing herself. 
And in some ways, this feels like a huge reinvention. Like it's it's the first album that she's done that's classified as alternative. You could, I think you could argue this one way or another, but you could say that there are no true pop songs on this album. And it's so pared down. It's so like just about the songwriting. And so in some ways, I think it's this huge departure, but at the same time, like stripping away all of that production, her voice is like not treated a ton. What it leaves is just the the storytelling and, you know, her delivery and ability to convey emotion that has always been what's made her great. Like Taylor Swift has never been, you know, she's not an Ariana Grande level singer. Like she doesn't right. have, she's not a five tool player but she has a few things that I just do not think anybody else can do as well. And this kind of combines using all of those in a really explicit way with the perspective of someone who's a little bit more grown up and a little bit, you know, more capable of adding emotional depth and maturity to those lyrics and, you know, her ability to just sort of play with words. And it's very cool. And I want to call it this like revolutionary moment in her career. But then I also keep going back to like, okay, you can hear, you know, Last Kiss or Dear John and and some of the older stuff in it too. So maybe it's a little bit more evolutionary than revolutionary. Yeah, I think that's a great point. It's everything that we knew she had in her that we wanted more of. You know, it's everything that like she gave us little glimpses of in the past that everyone was like, give us a whole album of this. And until now she was like, I'll give you some songs, but like not really, really lean in. And now she has finally leaned in, which is revolutionary to a certain extent that she's finally like just kind of let herself embrace that. But yeah, I agree. I mean, we knew that she had this in her and that's why we've wanted something like this for so long, you know, and that's what makes her so great is that nobody else can do this. Um, So I totally agree. I think that's part of why I was a little anxious just even in the short period of time that we had to be anxious about it, just because the vibe immediately, like with the woods and the uppercase, uh, the lowercase song titles, it was all so like telegraphing, you know, even the title folklore, it was so telegraphing, like this is going to be a folky songwritery album, which is what people have wanted to hear her do that. I was like, oh my God, she's doing the thing everybody wants her to do. What if it's not good? But it turns out it is. It is. Thank goodness. Okay. The only thing that I think a lot of people have been talking about, which you have mentioned before, classic Taylor Swift is the question of her choice of single. Uh, Cardigan is the main single for this album. She released the music video today as well. And I think people are a little mixed on whether it was the right choice of song as they always are. I'm curious about your thoughts on that and on the music video as well. So I think it doesn't really matter that much just because one, all the songs dropped at once. And two, it's interesting because especially compared to Lover, it's a really thematically diverse album. Like there's songs about the lady who owned her house in Rhode Island before and somebody, a dead person watching their enemies go to their funeral and like all of these different things. And there's no, you know, Lover was about love. It had this very cohesive theme. But musically, it was in all sorts of different directions. Like there was, you know, Paper Rings was like pop punky and 
lover was like a throwbacky waltz and it just went in all these different directions. Whereas this is really musically cohesive, but um, thematically kind of all over the place. So I think, you know, Cardigan is a fine choice to me, but not particularly significant just because it's not wildly different in its core elements than like, I really love August is one of my favorite. I was going to say that would have been my pick. So like that could have been a good single. Yeah. Um, and it's almost August. Like that would have right, gotten exactly. the seasons right. <laughs> well, although then why wasn't Cruel Summer a single off lover? Right. Questions we will never answer. But yeah. I have a feeling that she just had an idea for a music video for Cardigan. And that's a great point. That, and like that's why <laughs> it happened in this order. And it's a great segue. So the music video came out this morning. Basically, she first of all, I love the the quarantine vibes of this music video. She has rejected real clothes. She's welcomed the nap dress discourse. Uh, she's just in a nightgown, which so are we all really spiritually. Um, and she's playing a piano in the attic. She like climbs into this magic piano, ends up in the woods throughout it, does not put on real clothes. Um, and I just really appreciate the the energy, the quarantine energy of Cardigan. I've adopted the word house dress. Nice. As something that is part of my life in quarantine. And I think Taylor has too. Yeah. So have we all. I also wanted to mention after the Lover music video, she started like this kind of online trend of like the dip dyed hair. Because in the Lover video, she had like the tips of her hair were like blue or pink. So in this video, it's a different vibe. She's got like her curly bangs and then she's got these little braided like like milkmaid buns. Do you think we will see an increase in teens wearing milkmaid buns. Do you now have the desire to wear milkmaid buns yourself after watching this video? The teens will. Um, <laughs> I'm TBD. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. The curly bangs looked good, though. I do have to say, as someone who's embraced my quarantine curls, I was like, you know what? Maybe. Maybe. Yeah, <laughs> totally. totally. She's convincing. All right. Hit me with your next takeaway. Okay. So there are some new collaborators. Um, she's got Aaron Desner from the national in the fold. And then he apparently connected her with Bonnie bear, which feels to me like something that was just definitely going to happen at some point, (laughs) but is also wild. Like there are points in time, probably most of them around the year 2014, where if someone had put just the words, you know, Taylor Swift featuring Bonnie Vare in front of my eyeballs. I would have done the like the thing that dogs do where they turn their head to the side and just go like, what are you talking about? And I've always like, I don't one of the other things that I would love to like give Taylor Swift truth serum and and pick her brain about is like how she chooses collaborators because she chooses a lot of cool people, also some very bad people. But often, I think just because of sort of how singular her delivery is, it comes off really weird. She also has this tendency to just be like, no, no, you can take the lead on this one. And like there was a song that she did with Boys Like Girls a really long time ago that I think is just like (laughs) should be against the law. And she doesn't come in until like late in the second verse or something. And she's just like so subdued in it. and. Every time I'm made aware again of that song, I just find myself going like, did you not understand 
who you had and who else you had here. Like what was going on in whatever room the decisions were made? Bonnie Bear is obviously different. It's interesting because there's a world in which her voice doesn't hold up to Justin Vernon's voice. I think it does. Um, the song is called Exile. It's it's I think it's beautiful. It's it it's a good duet because it tells, you know, two sides of sort of lovers who have alienated each other. And the interplay there is very good. I just have yet to come up with sort of a, a, a thesis of why this works with him, whereas her collaborating with Brandon Urie from Panic at the Disco did not work. Both people I like very much, but I it, it's just a little bit of a, it's always a dice roll when she works with someone. Yeah, I was bemoaning, we did a tea time recording yesterday, like in advance of this album. And I was bemoaning the fact that she always works with Jack Antonoff, but like they couldn't get Lord to do one verse on this album. I just like, I'm like, I want women. I've never been listening to a Taylor Swift song and been like, you know what I want to hear right now? A man. Like that literally has never crossed my brain. Just ban them from Taylor Swift songs. I would not miss them. This, this, it's fine. Bon Iver is fine. I'm just like, I don't, I've never been like, Maybe Taylor should stop singing so that we can listen to men. I just have never thought that. That is exactly how I feel all the time. <laughs> that is probably, you know, I try to not creative direct her career as much as I would like to, but that is the one thing where it's just like, call Liz Rose. Liz Rose was the co-writer on All Too Well. That was the last song that they did together. Did you lose her number? <laughs> what, Like, what's the situation? And it's not that I haven't loved everything that she's done since, but particularly as we've seen her become more willing to, you know, talk about feminism, talk about her place in the music industry as a woman and write actually, especially now, I love the song Mad Woman on here in a really compelling way about the feelings associated with that experience. I just feel like the natural next step is for her to work with some women. And it's not that I really hold it against her that she's not. I just think that if she did, it would be fantastic. Yeah, we want more of it. Please give us more. We right, know you more. have female friends. It's well documented. <laughs> Work with some of them. Um, I fully agree with you. Okay, my next takeaway um, is that I was shocked to open this album and see little explicit tags next to, I believe, five total of the songs on this album. Shocking. Taylor Swift curses now and she sings about sex sometimes. What do we think? She said fuck twice. Twice thrilling. It's a whole new, like, <laughs> that's the revolutionary part of this album. It is literally the first line of this album in the song, The One, the whole first line of the whole album. I'm doing good. I'm on some new shit. I heard that and I was like, this is different. This is the Taylor that I like right now. Like, there's just, there's like a confidence to it, which I think is very cool because some of the stuff that people sort of reflexively dislike about her or have, at least in the past, I think comes from this kind of like nervous, anxious energy that she projects sometimes. And that's more in her her publicly documented personal life than I think it is in the actual songs. But still, like that was a good, you know, it's way more believable than I forgot that you existed opening up Lover because that is <laughs> definitionally not true. I love that song. I think it's super fun. But it has that Taylor element of like, okay, sure. Whereas this was like, oh, I feel like you are on some new shit. 
Let's go. It's very real, very earnest. Like, I feel like in the past when she's tried to be like, I'm grown, like, I'm a new woman, like, girl power, I can curse. It's been, like, a little performative, which, again, is fine and it has its place. But, like, putting this, like, explicit songs in any way onto, like, this very earnest alternative album just feels, it feels right. It feels less like she's performing and more like she's like, I say fuck in my regular life and I just wanted to put it in the song because that's how people talk. There's some interview where she's with like Barbara Walters or somebody where um, it's not Barbara Walters. Uh, (laughs) Some unidentified journalist who's like, what's your favorite swear word? And then she just looks at the camera and goes, fuck, 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 fuck. I don't know if I can swear this much on this podcast, but you can. We'll allow Um, it. That's fantastic. Uh, (laughs) It is interesting, though, because. I remember before Lover came out, you know, we had the track listing and there was the man, which there was a little bit of press about it just being sort of a more explicit discussion of being a woman in music, being a woman in in the world than she'd engaged in before. And I love that song now. That song is just like something that I will blast in the car (laughs) driving and and feel great about. But when it initially came out, I was a little bit disappointed just because I had a different expectation of it, which was to have that signature Taylor Swift specificity applied to that experience. Mm. And then the man came out and it was just much more like generalized and anthemic, which again, I grew to love, but it wasn't what I was sort of hoping for. Mm -hmm. Mad woman is that. Yeah. It's explicit in, you know, both senses in the sense that that's one of the songs where there's an F-bomb, but just she's incorporating details that you know happened to her. It's not a generalized experience. And so that was very satisfying to me just as something that I'd hoped we would get from her. And now we have it. I agree. And I think that segues into your next takeaway, which is to get a little more specific about some of these lyrics and some of what these songs are about. Yeah. So I think I was going, I was going to say that I I think only one of these songs is about her boyfriend, Joe Alwyn slash, are they secretly married is a question I have. Who knows? Maybe. Uh, (laughs) One doesn't know. Uh, On on a second look, it, it could be more than one, but there's only one, why am I blanking on the name? Uh, Invisible String that is obviously like has an Easter egg and not a particularly hard to, to find one about him. It says that he wore a teal shirt when he worked at a Froyo store, which Joe Alwyn apparently did in London when he was a teenager. It was called Snog. No. (laughs) (laughs) Would you go to a Froyo place called Snog? Kate? Honestly, probably just for the gram, you know? Yeah. I feel like when I was 16, I would have made jokes with my friends about like, we would have made it a verb and said, do you want to like, do you want to go snogging? <laughs> Especially if someone who looked like Joe Allen worked there. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, that that's, that's a very astute point. That's a game changer. Yes. But yeah. So it's, it's interesting because I think we always assume that, you know, the majority of songs on a Taylor album are going to be about the boys in her life. And that seems to actually not be true because like we were talking about, it's a really thematically diverse album and the source material is 
super all over the place. Like the last great American dynasty, which we were talking about is about, um, Betty Harkness, who is this crazy, like philanthropist woman who married into the standard oil fortune and owned the place in Rhode Island that Taylor bought in 2013 and, and had all those weird photos with Hiddle Swift on the beach and iconic, iconic, great times. Um, remember when he wore a belt and like leather boots to take a stroll on the beach? That was weird. What a time. But that's always sort of a, that's a fascinating element about Taylor to me in general is just her ability to like read Romeo and Juliet and be like, you know what? I could make a song about that if I just changed the ending which is a, a a fairly brash decision, but one that I think has resulted in a lot of great songs. But we really get so much of that on this album. Um, we can get into, there's a triad of songs that I think you can discuss <laughs> that the origins of the source material are up for debate. They are. And I think, you know, Taylor attributes, you know, throughout her career and throughout her discography, she says that songs are about one thing. Sometimes the fans choose to disbelieve that. And I think she knows that. And so there's a trio of songs, including Betty, Cardigan, and August, right? Those are the three. Yeah. And she called them the teen love triangle songs. So supposedly she wrote the three of these songs from three different points of view of three teens who are caught up in this love triangle. So the one that people have chosen to uh, pinpoint is Betty, which is supposedly written from the point of view of James, um, which is like a teenage boy who's in love with this girl. Um, but as you know, on the internet, if Taylor Swift is going to sing a song about being in love with a woman, people are going to think that it's Taylor Swift being in love with a woman because that's just that's just what it's become. And I think Taylor Swift knows that. So being queer baited by Taylor Swift is just like an annual tradition by now. <laughs> the last album we had... Um, or no, on uh, Reputation, we had Dress, which people were like, this is about her love for Carly Kloss. This is about the fact that she's secretly a lesbian. Obviously, like the Tumblr detectives are going to do what the Tumblr detectives are going to do. Um, but the Tumblr detectives are at it again with Betty because there's been lots of great internet investigation. Um, Madison Malone Kersher wrote a great piece for Vulture. But, you know, it's Taylor Swift seeing about being in love with this girl and her experience being in love with this girl. And... Even if Taylor, you know, meant to do this from the point of view of a boy, as she said, she also knows what people are going to are going to think. You know what I mean? Nothing she does isn't purposeful. Right. I mean, she she plans out everything. She knows how everything is going to go over. Um, so obviously the Internet is like this is about Carly Kloss. Taylor is named after James Taylor. So James is her. Carly Kloss's middle name is Elizabeth. So Betty is her. Obviously, there are a lot of Bettys on this album. You just named another one. Um, and James and Inez are mentioned in the song and they're Ryan Reynolds and Blake Lively's kids. Like there are a million different, different things that you could take away from the song. But I think kind of the beauty of it is that Taylor knows that. And she plants these little Easter eggs because she knows that people are going to run in whatever direction they want to run in. Um, and so she gave us this song that either is or isn't her like queerest song ever. And it seems to me like kind of like permission to like take it as you will. Right. She knows that she has a fan base that is very LGBT heavy and, you know, carries a lot of weight on whatever conspiracy theory they have. And I, it kind of felt like her blessing to just be like, I wrote it from this point of view, but like, it's going to sound like this and like, feel free to have fun with it and like, do what you want with it. That was my takeaway. 
I think that is, I think that's absolutely right. <laughs> I think that if you choose to read these songs as a celebration of the love that may or may not be Kaler, then <laughs> I am certainly not here to stop you. I also think just going back to something that we were talking about earlier, the choice of Cardigan as the lead single, I doubt that this would have been the central reason for it, but there could have been an added benefit in getting to have that conversation about, oh, there was this high school love triangle that I just thought was such an interesting story and I wanted to write from all those different perspectives to sort of maybe tongue in cheek, maybe not plant that right up at the top and make it part of the discourse, which I think, I mean, Taylor knows what's going on on Tumblr. Right. I mean, she's literally on Tumblr for one. And like she knows in quarantine, she must be on Tumblr a lot. And she knows what people are saying. She knows what people want to think. And like she's playing into that. I don't think it's in a malicious way. I think that there is some like actual queer baiting that people do where it's like they, you know, are manipulating fans and to think that way. And I don't think that's true at all. Obviously, she's saying like, this is how I wrote these songs and not like, oh, maybe I'm in love with Carly Kloss. Like, that's not at all what's happening. But it does feel like she's just kind of like giving permission to be like, I know how this is going to go over and like, do what you will with this song. Enjoy, which we have. We've enjoyed it very much. (laughs) We've enjoyed it very much. And she's always kind of done that. I mean, there's always a tension between and I don't think that either side of this is illegitimate, but there's always a tension between some of the things that she's said about, you know, struggling in the public eye and having her life picked apart, but then also acknowledging that the planting of the Easter eggs and, you know, all of the, the Swifties going Woodward and Bernstein every time there's a new release, like that's part of the package that you get. And that's part of the fun of it. And so I don't, I don't think it's, you know, I think there is a lot of it that she gives permission for. And and it seems like it seems like she's having fun with this. So we will, too. I know. I think this album came out exactly how she wanted it to, obviously. And it's something that fans have enjoyed clearly a lot that we're enjoying a lot. Um, I want to ask you just kind of to wrap things up. Where would you put folklore in her greater discography? And just kind of where do you think she goes from here? Let's start. Rank like your top three Taylor Swift albums, unless they don't include folklore, in which case maybe rank more of them. Ah, this is so hard. Um, you haven't had a lot of time with it. I understand. So this is just like off the cuff. It's, it really is so hard. I think I, I have a hard time believing that anything will ever top red. I totally agree. That is my exact stance. (laughs) This does. I'm, I'm a reputation Stan. Like Mm. I, I like that album, but that's, that is now definitely not in the top group for me. Um, maybe it's folklore, 1989, red, red number three. Oh no, number one You're in reverse in other, in, order. Okay, it, okay but so it, you know what? It might still. be. Maybe this is this might end up number two. The thing that I think about this is that this is the first time that I've heard a whole Taylor album and thought to myself she could make 10 of these and they would all be good. Right. So it could be a real, like, that's like a, that's the legacy part. That's not the, where does this specific album fall in? Mm -hmm. But I think it's, I think it will end up being something that, you know, I think it will age very well. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I think it'll be something that like we look back on as, you know, it's the first album of her thirties. It's, I've always felt like she will be someone who is writing for a really, really, really long time. And so maybe this is sort of the opening the door to that. So it could be a really important album. I still, it just, I just don't think anything will ever top red for me. It, it is very much personal preference, right? Because she has so much range. Like it's so hard to compare like 1989 to folklore because they're totally different types of music. Right. And like, obviously the things that make Taylor great are present in both of them, but it just comes down to which kind of songs you prefer really. Yeah. And it's also like, if some, like I can't, sometimes I think about like, I would take 1989 to a desert Island but part of that is that, like, I know no one could break up with me on a desert island if it was just me there. So I don't necessarily need red the same way that, like, I might need it in real life, knock on wood. Um, this one, it doesn't, since it doesn't have the musical range, it's almost like you don't, you don't get as many things from it, but you get such a mm. high quality of this one thing right. from it. And I think that is how we will end up thinking about it. I agree. And it's harder to pinpoint specific. I think it'll be harder to look back and pinpoint specific songs from it, especially since she hasn't been able to promote them like she usually does. Like it is very much one unit. And like, we're going to talk about folklore. I don't know that we're going to talk about Cardigan in August. You know what I mean? Like the way we do Blank Space or, or 1989 or one of those. You know what I mean? So I do think it's just a very difficult thing to compare because they're such different products. But yeah, I agree. It's in the top three for sure. I think Red's still my number one, but... Time will tell. The fall will tell. I'll listen to it in the fall and then I'll get back to you and let you know if it beats 1989. Okay, fantastic. I'm looking forward to it, Kate. All right. On that note, I think it's time to wrap it up um, since I, for one, would rather be listening to this album than listening to us talk about it. Uh, Nora, thank you so much for joining. I'm very happy for you. It's a big day for you and all Swifties. Um, (laughs) What a gift. (laughs) Thank you to Erica Cervantes, our producer. And thanks for listening to another episode of Ringer Dish. Ringer Dish. 